0: Good evening and welcome to AUA's Treatment for Hormone Sensitive Prostate Cancer. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we can continuously improve our programs. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this Internet Live activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Course handouts from the presentations have been made available to you. Please visit AUA University to access the handouts. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on the AUA University immediately following the course. As we at the AUA continue to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we especially welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format following the program. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view faculty and education council disclosures. Coding advice given during the presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. The AUA would like to thank Astellas and Pfizer, Inc. for providing an independent educational grant in support of this webinar. Finally, I'd like to introduce and extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Sanaj Poonin, for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Dr. Poonin is an associate professor and vice chair of clinical research in the Desai-Sethi Urology Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and Sylvester Cancer Center.
1: Great. Thank you for everybody uh, for giving us your time and participation, uh, but we're ready to begin the session now. So based on the documented need from the AUA Advanced Prostate Cancer Global Needs Assessment, uh, we have discovered that the AUA has uh, provided additional education to update urologists on the latest advancements in the management of hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, including treatment intensification. We move on. Now, um, these are the learning objectives that we're gonna go through through the webinar. Now, these are posted on the AUA University and will be available to you. And we will cover all of them through the case discussions that we plan to have today. We have three case discussions through which we will cover all of these objectives. Uh, We can move on. And it's my honor uh, to present to uh, you guys our both our esteemed panelists uh, representing the urology side. We have Dr. Chad Rich, who's an associate professor of urology at the, at the Urology Institute at the University of Miami. Uh, and on the medical oncology side, we have Dr. Rayna McKay, who is an associate professor of medicine and urology from the University of uh, California, San Diego. And it's a great pleasure to have uh, both of these people with us today. They're thought leaders in the field of advanced prostate cancer, and I think we're gonna learn quite a bit uh, in the case discussions with them today. Okay, and we'll move on. So before we actually dive into the cases, I wanted to give a a little bit of background in terms of what we're gonna be talking about today. So we all know, prostate cancer has a wide spectrum of disease from localized disease within the prostate gland to metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. You can go to the next slide. Now, the focus of this webinar is going to be in the central space, which is newly diagnosed metastatic patients who have hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, so they're not refractory to androgen deprivation therapy. Now, just to give you some demographics, we can move to the next slide. We all know that prostate cancer is one of the most common cancers among men and second most common cause of cancer-related death among men in the United States. Next one. Uh, we also know with respect to distant-stage prostate cancer, we are seeing an increased incidence from 4% in 2003 to about 8% in 2017. And We can get the next slide. And it looks like an estimated almost 200,000 men would be living with metastatic prostate cancer by the year 2030. So you can see this is a significant problem, and this is an ever-changing field in our discipline. And so I think it's great that we have this opportunity to discuss what's changed and how we could best manage these patients. Uh, we'll move to the next slide. So this is an excerpt from our AUA guidelines, and I do want to take a little bit of time and read through this because I think it really does display the real should and should nots in terms of management of uh, advanced prostate cancer. So in terms of a prognosis, when you see these patients, all clinicians should assess the extent of metastatic disease, looking at what's involvement in the lymph nodes, the bone, and visceral metastasis. We wanna assess the extent of metastatic disease and try to classify patients into either having a high burden of metastatic disease or a low volume of metastatic disease. And we're gonna hear some discussion around what is considered high versus low today. We want to also assess if they're symptomatic. Are they experiencing any symptoms for their metastatic disease? You know, we want to obtain a baseline PSA and serial PSAs every three to six months after initiation of therapy uh, to see, you know, how they're responding to therapy. And as again, we're going to bring up in our discussions one of the major considerations is we want to offer germline and consider somatic and genetic somatic testing and genetic genetic counseling. Sorry, for all men who are presenting with metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. Now with respect to treatment, all clinicians should offer ADT with either an LHRH agonist or antagonist or use surgical castration. You wanna offer ADT in combination with either an androgen pathway directed therapy uh, inhibitor such as uh, prednisone, derolutamide, enzalutamide or um, uh, any of the other ones uh, or, or, or chemotherapy and offer ADT in combination with docetaxel and either abiraterone acetate plus prednisone or derolidivide in selected patients with de novo metastatic prostate cancer.
2: All right, everyone. We're going to dive into the first case. All right, so um, next slide. So we've got a 67-year-old man um, who'd underwent a prior um, radical prostatectomy. He's grade group four and um, uh, was treated with surgery, then unfortunately ended up having a rising PSA, received salvage radiation with six months of... ADT. His past medical history is significant for diabetes. He's got hypertension. He's got AFib. He's had some prior surgeries. The surgery, uh, um, the RP and the appendectomy. His PSA, um, initially after radiation therapy was um undetectable, and then he was lost to follow up and five years later presents with a PSA of uh 23. So um Maybe we go to the next slide, and he undergoes some imaging, and maybe even actually before we before we get to that, diving right into the imaging, um, Dr. Rich, uh, if you want to go back a slide, uh, what would you do at this juncture? Would you, how would you image this patient? Comes in, PSA of 23. What do you kind of do in your practice? Just a CT scan, yeah. bone scan.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to prefer now more of the PSMA PET imaging, and if you look at the AS, uh, AUA guidelines, um, they say if it's available, that's uh, preferentially what we should do to get a true assessment of his metastatic burden. Nothing wrong with a CT and a bone scan, but I think if it's available, if the insurance recovered it, I I probably would prefer a PSMA PET scan. Wonderful.
1: So the patient had a CT scan that was negative, but um, as Dr. McKay probably mentioned, uh, they they had three bony lesions that were actually found on the bone scan. Uh, so, Dr. Rich, I think you were talking about you know uh, what were your uh, imaging agents of choice. Uh, I think you mentioned you, you would probably get a PSMA or would you consider just conventional?
3: Yeah, I think I would probably prefer a PSMA PET scan, and I think again, you know, the the most current AUA guidelines support preferentially using that if it's available to you. Um, I, I think the big thing here is you really want to get a good assessment of the metastatic burden because, as you pointed out in the very beginning, you know, sort of the first stratification step is, you know, how high of a volume disease do they have? So I think you have pointed out here that he has what uh, three um, bony metastases. Three areas. Yeah. So you know that that would be considered low volume metastases. It, it's not. Um, He doesn't have additional metastases outside of his axial skeleton, so that would be four or more, including one outside of the spine and pelvis. Um, So yeah, I would probably prefer a PSMA PET scan to give us a good assessment of of disease burden here. Yeah.
1: Okay. Dr. McKay, what are your thoughts? Would you get a PSMA as well?
2: I mean, I would get a PSMA PET scan as well, but I have to say, I think there is great utility in CT bone scan because a lot of the way you know, high volume disease, low volume disease, they weren't defined using PSMA PET. So, you know, low volume disease by PSMA PET is a different disease entity. High volume disease by PSMA PET is a different disease entity. So I think I like getting the routine imaging so I can at least know, like compared to reference standard, where does this individual fall with regards to the charted high and low volume criteria? And, um, you know, in this context where he's got oligometastatic disease, he's got five spots that are seen on bone scan. I definitely want to get a PSMA PET because I'm going to want to think about potentially metastasis directed therapy. But if his PSMA PET is lighting up like a Christmas tree, maybe that may not be a good option for him. You know. Right, right. So let's keep it interesting. Let's say we do get a PSMA PET
1: and we end up seeing these three bony lesions that we're seeing on the bone scan. Uh, but we also see, let's say, three other ones that are kind of non-specific, not too high in terms of their SUV. Uh, how, Dr. Rich, how would you classify this patient? Would you still keep them low risk or would you move them to high risk based on the
3: PSMA? Yeah, I mean, you have to go with what you're seeing. And obviously, the, the specificity of PSMA PET stands up pretty good. It's, it's very sensitive. And, you know, assuming with that PSA of 23, that what it's showing there is real, if these are multifocal, you know, rib lesions, clavicle, you know cervical spine then i would consider him high volume now if it's all like within the pelvis does that necessarily make him high volume and i know there's debate about you know where those metastases are if that makes you high volume but but in general yes i would consider it a higher volume uh, burden of disease
1: dr McGay,
3: your thoughts
2: so i am pretty uh uh i guess uh Strict on the on the definition of high and low volume. I define high and low volume based off of conventional imaging. The PSMA PET is very helpful, and it's absolutely something that I would do in this situation. But when I classify the patient, I utilize the standard kind of uh, purist definition of high and low volume disease, which was based off of conventional imaging. Right.
1: Okay, great, great discussion so far.
2: So uh, one of the things I wanted to get is if, let's just
1: say we go on the conventional imaging, we consider him to have three bony lesions, so we call him, you know, low volume. Dr. Kameke, can you give us kind of what are your options for management in someone that you consider low volume metastatic and what are your options for someone that you would consider high
2: volume? Yeah, so very um, good question, you know, and I think the other thing to consider for this individual is timing of metastases, because in addition to volume of disease, we know that patients who present with metachronous disease versus synchronous disease have different outcomes, and I think I, a lot of times, will overlay the timing of their mets um, into the picture. But nonetheless, I think there really is very limited role in the modern era for ADT alone, for somebody who has metastatic disease on conventional imaging, in every context, we've demonstrated that the addition of um, an ARSI uh, or an ARSI plus chemotherapy improves outcomes. You know, so at a minimum, I think this individual should be considered for, um, you know, a, a concomitant ARSI, and there's a lot of them that are already FDA approved. Um, and there's a lot there. There's a lot of kind of uh, patient preference, physician preferences around the agent, but I would consider that, and I would consider metastasis directed therapy in, in this individual. Um, you know, after getting a PSMA PET and seeing what that unfolds.
1: When you say metastasis directed therapy, do you mean radiation to the the? Uh, yeah,
2: radiation sex, right? to the L five left um HEM, you know, left eighth rib. I think a lot of times, you know, you you all probably you know half of the patients at tumor border, oh, let's look at this PSMA PET lesion. Is it real? Is it not real? How much do we, right. what's the index of suspicion that this thing is real or not real? And so to the extent that we that we believe it, you know, a lot of times it's impossible to go and biopsy all of these areas. But, you know, uh, when there's concordance across scans, you know, this is also present on a bone scan Then thinking about radiation to these spots.
1: Great. Uh, Dr. Rich, I want to ask you the same question really is when you're looking at a patient with low volume metastatic disease versus high volume, how do you counsel them with respect to options of systemic therapy as well as radiation and metastatic sites?
3: Yeah, I mean, similar to Dr. McKay, I think, you know, if you see low volume disease, we as urologists were comfortable with ADT and hormone therapy, you feel comfortable uh, offering them, you know, one of the the ARSIs, you know, so abiraterone, apalutamide, enzalutamide, Um, If I saw a high-volume disease, and even if it was on the PSMA PET scan, I'm initiating a discussion with them about considering triple therapy and adding the abiraterone and docetaxel or uh, darolutamide and docetaxel. And I I think probably, you know, one of the big take-homes for this, as you're going to allude to, is we as urologists, knowing and being familiar with some of these oral androgen receptor um, signaling medications is, is very important. And these therapies are something that we have to consider. And this kind of patient is somebody I would feel comfortable starting uh, them on, given the burden Thanks. of disease.
1: We can move to the next slide. So this patient actually did get started on ADT first. And before coming to you, they actually had another PSA drawn, which actually came down quite a bit. To point three almost undetectable there. Would any of you feel comfortable that we can just leave him on the ADT now? I know Dr. McKay, you kind of alluded this a little bit, uh, but I'll ask you Dr. Rich first, would you kind of, considering the response, would you just keep on ADT or would you still add something?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the overwhelming um, um, data has shown support to the benefit of adding one of these other medications. So I, I wouldn't keep him on ADT only, I would add something else to it.
1: I think Dr. McKay, you mentioned that as well earlier. Um, Just before we conclude this case and open it up to the the chat, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the role of uh, genetic testing, you know, in terms of germline and somatic, and and who you and how you actually do this in your practice.
2: Yeah, very good question. So I think for all men with um, metastatic disease, uh, advanced disease, it's absolutely indicated to think about doing germline testing. The risk of actually finding a genomic alteration is around 10 to 12%. Um, So, you know, uh, this is not something that's inconsequential. Um, You know, we have that discussion in in the clinic with the patients. We actually have a nice uh, patient video that patients can watch about what are the implications, what is germline testing, what is DNA, what does it mean? It's a small, uh, short five-minute video. They watch it, and then they decide if it's something they want to do. And it's very easy. It's just a simple blood test or saliva swab and there's also some other resources like the promise uh, registry it's a online um patient registry for men with advanced prostate cancer any man can go online sign up um they send you a kit you you know swab your cheek or, or take the you know uh tubes to the lab i think it's a cheek swab actually and you just send it back and they even will do the pre and post test counseling in the context of promise so it really does Um, you know, takes the burden off of you as the clinician. um, And the patients can request that the data be sent to their provider. So you can refer patients to Promise. It's a national registry for men with advanced disease, um, you know, doing hereditary testing. Very easy.
1: Great. OK, I think we can open this up soon, but before we, I just wanted to go through the key points. So, so the, the main key points for this case, I think, is we did discuss the options of management around metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. And as we discussed, there's very little role of just ADT alone. We're almost always adding something. I think we brought home the importance of, you know, doing imaging to evaluate the strength of metastatic disease and providing appropriate therapy based on that extent. And Dr. McKay nicely illustrated the role of genetic testing in this space. So I think we can open it up to the chat here, and uh, we had a nice question, I think, just looking at, can we have metastasis-directed therapy, and ADT, for 0.5 to one 0.5 to one year? like is that a PSA of 0.5?
2: No, I think think for half so, but I think duration, that's a very good question. Oh, half a year. I, I don't think we know the answer to that question, right? Like we haven't yet conducted those trials. I think in clinical practice, I know there's, you know, we all have a little bit of hesitancy of people who get, who've had their primary treated or removed. They have oligometastatic disease. You've radiated all visible sites. There's a little bit of hesitancy of leaving those individuals on lifelong ADT. Nobody wants to stay on lifelong ADT. And so I do think in clinical practice, um, I think a lot is being there's a lot of things being done. Some people are doing six months, some people one year, some people two years. And we don't really have good level one evidence to guide just exactly when to stop in somebody who's got or who has received metastasis directed therapy to oligometastatic disease.
3: I, I think in, in that situation with the um, metastasis-directed therapy and ADT alone, you know, given that most of the oral therapies, the side effect profile is relatively low, why not um, maximize systemic therapy since you are dealing with metastatic disease uh, at that time? I, I like the idea of giving um, metastasis-directed therapy, but if you really have an a agent that truly improves um, you know, survival benefit, Why not maximize it by using that, especially, you know, if the side effect profile is is pretty well tolerated.
1: I think that's a great point. So I I think, you know, when you look at the systemic therapy, and there's really the question about intensity and duration are the key things. So if I had to ask you, would you prefer a six-month intensified regimen where you may be doing ADT and adding on another androgen axis inhibitor versus, let's say, two years of, you know, just a long duration ADT, which would you two prefer?
3: Intense.
2: <laughs> Same here, intense. I think, you know, not to speak on behalf of patients, I think people would rather be done um, with the ADT. Totally agree. And then time to testo recovery Great. is a lot faster post short course therapy.
1: Great. We're going to go move to the next case. But before we go with that, I think there was an interesting question that just came through about a biomarker that kind of could help us in that space. So are you guys aware? of any biomarker that would help you tell you when a patient could come off therapy or who you'd want to intensify or not?
2: You know, we don't yet have a great biomarker. I will say that um, PSA is absolutely being used as a biomarker. There's very um, interesting data in the metastatic setting that six-month PSA getting to less than 0.2. That data has been... um, mirrored also in the localized setting for people getting radiation and ADT. So I think there's in people who are not able to get to an undetectable PSA, there's probably some hesitancy in stopping. Um, I think there's a lot of biomarkers like P10 status, TP53, RB that are associated with worse outcomes, but I don't know that they necessarily will guide the decision to stop or start therapy.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, there's a lot of like buzz around things like circulating tumor DNA and all this stuff, but I don't think it's prime time ready. And like Dr. McKay is saying, PSA is still probably our best test to, to monitor these patients.
1: Yep. Great. Let's move on to the next case. Great questions from the group as well, though. Thank you for those that are participating and adding questions to our chat. Um, so the next case is case number two. It's a 58-year-old young man with a PSA of nine has an MRI that shows. 45 cc prostate but a pyrides 5 lesion. Subsequently undergoes a biopsy that shows a grade group 4, or 5 in half of the cores that were taken. Now he does have a CT and bone scan that are done that were actually negative, no show any metastatic disease. However through our tumor board discussions he ends up having a PSMA PET done as well and we can just get the next slide that brings in the image. And it shows a solitary region in the left seventh rib. Now, Dr. Rich, let me come to you first, because this patient was planning on having surgery until he got the PSMA scan and it shows only one little spot and he's still very intent on having surgery um, and doesn't understand why you would ever consider anything different. What are your thoughts on this gentleman here?
3: Uh, this, is the first, this is where I start kicking myself for getting the PSMA scan and I'm <laughs> finding this solitary <laughs> Um Yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon to see this and we're like, is this real? And as, as Dr. McKay said before, you know. Can you biopsy these little things? And if it's a metastatic disease, are you still going to offer them surgery? I mean, look, I think this is where patient selection um, and you know uh, having hopefully a multidisciplinary disciplinary team can help. But if if your patient is fit and healthy, you discuss with them the, the pros and cons that look, you may have uh, metastatic disease based on this PSMA scan. There's a solitary area. We still have good systemic therapies. Uh, you will tolerate a prostatectomy very well, you know, and, you know, hands, continence and erectile function will be okay. Um, I, I would still consider offering, you know, this patient surgery. Um, and, and a lot of it, you know, yes, it's all based on old school retrospective data of uh, when they did prostatectomies um, and gave adjuvant hormone therapy afterwards, versus those patients where they aborted the prostatectomy because they had positive nodes and in some of those series, the Mayo Clinic probably has the biggest series of this. Um, The patients who got the prostatectomies did pretty well, and these were like, you know, advanced disease. Now, granted, it's not this patient. I understand all the limitations of those retrospective studies, but, you know, in some well-selected patients, a prostatectomy is is a reasonable first step.
1: Great, great answer. When this patient comes to you and saying that he want surgery and uh, do you think that's a doable option for you? Do you think there's ever a role for surgery in potentially met- in metastatic
3: patients? Yeah, so again, I, I, would, I would consider- Oh, sorry, I was, sorry. Uh, Dr. McKay. Oh,
1: I yeah, Dr. Yeah, McKay. I mean, yeah, I
2: mean, I would absolutely, I mean, this the likelihood that this PSMA PET lesion and isolated rib metastasis is a true, real finding is very low. It's more likely that this is a false positive then it is a true positive. And so to divert this individual away from potentially curative intent treatment, I think would be a mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I probably would go ahead and move forward with surgery. And then he's going to declare himself post-RP. If, if this is thing is real, his PSA is going to be positive post his surgery. And then, you know, you can Potentially repeat the PSMA PET, or consider a salvage strategy with SBRT here. Or if he stays undetectable, you're patting yourself on the back that you did the right thing. (laughs) Now, to that question,
1: um, and I'm going to ask both of you this: I do agree with the fact the single solitary lesion, you know, and let's say the SUVs are not that high. Would would you do anything further? Would you consider a biopsy at this point or any other imaging to try to better characterize that site? Uh, what do you traditionally do when you see these PSMAs that may not match up with everything else?
3: Um, well, I'll start. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. obviously you ask history-wise, do, did they have any trauma to that area? You know, I, I know that PSMA is uh, more sensitive to pick up things and because it's targeted, it is more specific than just a regular PET CT, but you could still potentially have... Some overlap with trauma, so I would get like a rib X-ray and make sure there's not like some big um, scar or something there in the bone. Um, some people have used MRIs, but I've not found that to be very helpful. And I think, well, biopsy just depends on the radiologist that you are that you talk to. Yeah, hey,
2: Dr. McKay, how about you? Yeah, biopsy is challenging in these situations. It's challenging to biopsy rib lesions. You know, this is sometimes why I like getting a CT chest and a bone scan as well. Because if the only thing that you're seeing is avidity on a PSMA PET and there's a lack of concordance on the CT, there's a lack of concordance on the bone scan, then again, that increases the likelihood that it's a false positive. But if you have concordance across the board, you see a sclerotic lesion on the CT, there's uptake on the bone scan and it's PSMA PET positive and all three imaging modalities align, then the index of suspicion that that lesion truly is real is actually a little bit higher.
1: Okay, Dr. Rich, let me ask you. So this patient comes to your institution, has gone through the tumor boards, you know, and you're all discussing it multidisciplinary. How do you think this patient would be treated at your institution? As a standard of care there.
3: Well, I mean, you know- and I say that knowing that I'm at the same institution? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we probably would operate on this patient. And as you know, we have the SWOG trial here, so he could mm-hmm. potentially qualify yep. if that is positive. So the SWOG S802 trial is basically looking at systemic therapy uh, plus local therapy in patients with metastatic prostate cancer. So, you know, for for places that have that trial open, you know, this could be a candidate. You would have to biopsy that rib lesion and confirm that that is a metastasis, and they would have to have a correlate, I think, on the CT and the bone scan. So we would offer them clinical trial, um, and I think we probably have a 50-50 split, depending on who shows up to tumor board that day uh, for... Mm -hmm for uh, radiation and uh, ADT um, versus uh, surgery. Right.
1: How about you, Dr. McKay? How'd they be treated at uh, UC San Diego?
2: Probably with surgery. If the, if the patient wasn't climbing, this is a 58 uh, year old individual. So I think surgery and then letting him declare himself. And we can always go in with, radi- we, we haven't lost time if we go in with radiation later. And I will caveat that say this was metastatic disease, We've actually already proven that radiation to the prostate improves overall survival for people with low-volume metastatic disease. So there is a role for primary-directed therapy in the context of low-volume disease if this individual were to actually go on and declare himself to be low-volume metastatic, you know? So you haven't done him a disservice by operating or treating his primary So this
1: patient ended up uh, going on to get uh, radiotherapy, and they got it to the metastasis site, as well as to the prostate and pelvic lymph nodes. Um, And they got ADT and abiraterone prednisone for about two years now. Uh, The PSA with that has come down to completely undetectable, less than 0.014. And uh, they did do another PSMA scan that's not seeing, you know, uh, any avidity in the prostate, pelvic lymph nodes, or any of the bone regions, Uh, the the rib is gone as well. So this patient is having a miserable time with ADT, would love to come off uh, and wants to ask your thoughts on, you know, when can he stop, what can he stop, uh, and, and how would we go about doing that? Dr. Rich, why don't we start with you?
3: Yeah. So I am for patients um, who have shown that they don't have any metastases, you know, based on the intermittent versus continuous ADT uh, data showing that intermittent is non-inferior in non-metastatic patients. I'm pretty comfortable after two years if they've been rock solid, undetectable uh, stopping therapy. I mean, as we all know, continuous ADT, especially for somebody who's young, can be pretty miserable. Um, And I think that it is worth giving them a shot, so I would consider um, stopping and and if I had to do intermittent therapy um, later on, depending on what his PSA does. Yeah. And you would stop both medications or just?
2: Uh... Yeah, I would stop everything. Yeah.
3: How about you, Dr.
1: McKay?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're kind of in a data-free zone here, right? Like we're we're, um, you know, this gentleman ended up having his primary treated, the rib lesion treated, we're were or weren't sure if the rib lesion was positive and he empirically also got escalated hormonal therapy so we were kind of in a data-free zone you know we didn't like so I think that in general I'd lean towards that two-year threshold not because we have data but because okay in the context of radiation therapy we do two years and so this is like high risk and maybe let's do two years but we don't really have great data if you know so um but I I would certainly not consider this individual like a lifelong ADT candidate if he had all of his sites and disease treated.
1: Right. And then how would you follow this patient afterwards? So they come off everything, you know, uh, would you do some imaging serially? Uh, How how often are you going to get the PSA and the testosterone? What would you guys do?
2: Um, I would generally follow him with PSA and testosterone every three months. And then if he stays undetectable, you know, kind of space out the frequency. With regards to imaging, I generally don't do repeat imaging unless dictated by the PSA. The only caveat where I do think about kind of getting a scan at the one year mark or two year mark is people who have like, If he really had high volume Gleason five disease, where he's like not going to make PSA and his PSA is not going to be helpful, or have a lot of introductory features or features, you know, that would suggest that he's the PSA could, you know, um, uh, fool me, then I would image, you know, right. Uh, and
1: Chad, um, in terms of, you know, his PSA starts to rise, you know, uh, what, what kind of numbers would be something that you would look at to say, I'm going to stage him again, or considering and him back on therapy, uh, and would putting him back on therapy solely depend on something being there on imaging, or would there be other factors you'd look at?
3: Yeah, good question. So I think um, this is where the PSA weighs in heavily, and there isn't like a magic number where I say, okay, you've hit, you know, 0.2 or 0.3 or 0.5 it's just a trend, right? So you look at things like doubling. So if the doubling time is, I think traditionally less than 10 months is something that should raise your antenna and say, you know, your risk of developing metastases is higher. Doesn't necessarily mean you need to start anything, but if it's doubling time is that quick, I definitely am considering imaging. If there's still no metastases, um, I could try to push it out a little bit longer. I would consider doing that. um, to again, push that quality of life and, and help them. But if the doubling time is like, Really rapid, you know, if we're talking six months or less, then I probably would initiate something. And that, that, right. I mean, that would be ADT. Okay.
1: And, you know, we had discussed getting serial uh, PSA and testosterone uh, to watch these patients. And we got a question in the chat just about why we would want testosterone considering we're taking them off the therapy. Did one of you guys just want to give your thoughts on, you know, is it why you want the testosterone and how it would help you manage that patient?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of survivorship care, quite honestly, is like assessing, is their T still low? And it's also in how I interpret the PSA. If their testosterone never recovers and their PSA is undetectable, that they're technically kind of still feeling the effects of treatment. And then I'm probably going to be more keen on, gosh, well, you still need to do your DEXA scans because your T hasn't recovered. Gosh, let's check your lipids. Let's check your cholesterol, um, you know, hemoglobin A1C, all those things that come with hypogonadism, you know.
3: Yeah, and, and I think the important point is is we're checking to see when it uh rises to within the normal range. I don't think, at least I don't, once it's there and the patient is asymptomatic, I don't routinely check testosterone every single time yeah. the PSA. It's once they've normalized and they're feeling okay, then we stop, I stop checking. Yeah, great. I know
1: we've been somewhat in a realm of lack of data, so I'm gonna push us back into that for a space. You know, we did have a PSMA on this gentleman, and you know, a lot of people have talked about using PSMA. Uh, not just as a diagnostic tool, but also to look at, you know, treatment response. Um, What are your thoughts on that? I mean, Dr. McKay, you mentioned you kind of tend to use the imaging to kind of decide how patients are doing. What do you make sense of in terms of the PSMAs if everyone gets done or do you find them useful to follow patients?
2: So the problem is we don't really have good criteria to define relapse or response on PSMA. We just don't. And so I think sometimes people can make decisions a little bit too quick with what a PSMA scan may show. Like, we don't what does increase SUV uptake post somebody getting SBRT to elite? Like, you know what I mean? We don't know. We know that PSMA is expressed in endothelial cells. Like, could it be some sort of vascularization that's happening? Who knows? You know, we haven't really appropriately defined the criteria for progression on a PSMA PET scan. So I think we just have to. You know, in the context of serially monitoring for a response, that's that's not generally where I'm using PSMA PET imaging. I'm using it for diagno- diagnostic diagnosing metastatic disease in the context of people who have high risks newly localized, or they're biochemically recurrent, and I'm looking for meds, or I'm assessing candidacy for radioligand therapy. Those are kind of the three main scenarios where it's largely indicated. Great.
1: Uh, I think we can move to the next slide and just go through the key points. So, you know, we did discuss the role of localized and metastasis-directed therapy in this case. um, And we talked about the role of PSMA imaging uh, and where it does or does not may potentially help. So let's go to the next one, because I just wanna make sure we get that one covered as well. Uh, And we can move to the next slide here. So this is a patient, young male, with newly diagnosed uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And he comes in with a PSA of 400. He does have some uh, renal dysfunction and is a poorly controlled diabetic, has hypertension, no prior surgeries. Now, his staging is a little old. It's about two months ago. But at the time, he had a CT scan that showed some enlarged pelvic and retroperitoneal nodes, which you can see there. And he had mild bilateral hydronephrosis, But his bone scan did show widespread osseous mets. So he comes to see you first, Dr. McKay, um, you know, with metastatic prostate cancer, pretty significant disease, you know, but decent performance status. How would you counsel this patient um,
2: today? So, yeah, I mean, I think um, we have a lot of information here. He's de novo. He's high volume. He's in the highest risk category already. Um, These patients can do well with systemic therapy. They can do well for many years with systemic therapy. um, But these tumors, um, some, or these, these, you know, clinical prognostic features are associated with a little bit worse outcomes. You know, I think also looking at his comorbidities, that's going to help drive the type of therapy that he may receive. Um, and his burden of re- disease is going to drive the addition of dose taxol. You know, so as I think about a gentleman like this and thinking, okay, definitely start him on, you know, ADT, um, you know, uh, with the hydronephrosis, you know, You may even consider an LHRH antagonist up front, you know, just to not have that be worse. Um, You know, he's widely metastatic um, with the the poorly controlled diabetes, the hypertension makes me a little bit leery about using something like abiraterone where he's going to be taking prednisone and, um, you know, that can worsen the hypertension. So potentially thinking of a, you know, uh, androgen receptor blocker. And then the fact that he's 59 and even though he's got these comorbidities, he's healthy and has widespread de novo high volume disease, we're going to have a conversation about docetaxel now or docetaxel later, you know. Right, got it. Okay, we can move to the next slide. So Dr. Rich,
1: uh, this is about two weeks later and this patient presents to the emergency department with gross hematuria, urinary obstruction, and bilateral flank pains. Creatinine's gone up, and a CT shows progression to severe bilateral hydronephrosis. Now, the emergency department has uh, put a catheter in, uh, they got some blood, and they do see that his hematocrit has dropped. Uh, and the CBI is starting to clear, but still pink. Now, you happen to be on call, uh, and they, they know that he saw Dr. McKay, and he's got uh, pretty advanced prostate cancer. Uh, and they want you to kind of get involved earlier with a lot of his symptomatic uh, and, you know, clinical progressive symptoms. So, you know, given the fact that his performance status is already, you know, reduced, he's got bleeding, he's got obstruction, how do you approach a patient like this? You know, what would your thoughts be?
3: Yeah, this this is a very appropriate question since I'm on call right now, as you speak, <laughs> That's right. as you know. <laughs> Um, so hopefully it's not going to happen this evening. Yeah. But uh, you know the the first thing obviously is you want to consider: do you intervene or do you give them time? You know, do you try to irrigate, keep them on CBI? Uh, in my experience, a lot of these patients, it's the tumor itself that's bleeding, it's invading the prostate and the bladder neck, and you do have to intervene at some point for a lot of them, um, especially if the hemoglobin and hematocrit is dropping. Now, the intervention traditionally TERP I think is a good tool. Um, You go in and you can resect some of that tissue, try to fulgurate it. Um, another option, which we've used here, as you know, is uh, prostate artery embolization. Um, that's something that uh, may not help with the obstructive symptoms, but if you have somebody who's bleeding pretty severely and, you know, you can't take them to the OR, let's say they're not a good anesthesia candidate for general anesthesia, um, potentially you can consider, you know, PAE under sedation. Um, And then, of course, the bilateral hydronephrosis is of concern. You know, you want to divert those patients. So, you know, if their uh, creatinine has really bumped, which this one looks like it did, you want to consider putting in nephrostomy tubes is what I typically do um, pretty much right away if their hydro doesn't improve with the Foley catheter, uh, because you want to maximize them so that if Dr. McKay wants to give chemotherapy, you're helping with, you know, their renal function and you're trying to um, stop the bleeding so they're not anemic when they show up to her uh, chemo unit.
1: So Dr. McKay, you know, uh, this guy was in poor shape, but Dr. Rich sorted him out. He got some neprostomy tubes in, his creatinine's back to, you know, his baseline at least, and he's feeling a lot better. He's not bleeding anymore. You know, Terp helped. Uh, and, you know, but he's still kind of recovering, you know, and, and he wants to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, should he still be going through the chemo? When would you try to, you know, uh, give him some time for it? or Or would you think he's, you know, not able to anymore potentially?
2: Yeah. So generally, I kind of, my window is kind of for maximum six months, you know if it's not kind of given during that time window then it's it's no longer early chemo you know mm-hmm. so I think um you know if we're able to turn him around during that period of time, things got better you know the thing about all of this is that this is all disease related stuff this is all related to his adenopathy, it's related to his disease it's you know not necessarily being driven by his comorbidities per se so I think um you know if he's Improved, he's otherwise doing well and fit, and um I would absolutely consider it when i when I counsel people around chemotherapy, you know it obviously can be you know scary and and um but I tell them we're we're just gonna do one dose. Let's see how it goes. If it doesn't go, well, we're not gonna keep blasting away for you to get all six doses. We're gonna like do one dose, out. yeah, we're gonna mm-hmm. do one dose, we're gonna see how you do. If you do okay, great, we'll do a second dose. When you do the second dose, we're going to reassess. Great, we do a third dose. So it's, and there's a lot of tricks that we have to reduce the dose and even do weekly dosing if we need to, but, you know, um, that's sort of how I counsel around it. Right,
1: great. Now, uh, while he was in hospital, you know, uh, a PSMA pet was actually ordered for him, which he didn't get in hospital, but he did follow up and got it as an outpatient. And it shows two somewhat nonspecific pulmonary lesions. Does that change anything for you, Dr. McKay? I mean, do you feel more or less compelled to, to give him chemotherapy?
2: Yeah, you know, I think this this certainly comes up. Um, where I definitely kind of push for chemotherapy is in people who have visceral metastases. I think we're actually finding more pulmonary metastases than we ever did because of PSMA PET imaging. And I do think that the kinetics and prognosis of Pulmonary Mets versus like a liver mat are, are vastly different. But in general, I think if people have organ metastases related to their prostate cancer, I'm leaning more towards chemotherapy. Um, you know, anecdotally, I think that genomics can also be helpful here. Um, you know, if you've got a lot of tumor suppressor loss, gene alterations um, that are, you know, basically known mechanisms of resistance to hormone therapy. It's nice to think about chemotherapy that, you know, gets around that. Um, but you know, there's not necessarily data to guide selection of therapy based off of genomic data for the MHSPC setting.
1: You know, when I think about this uh, and kind of look at the role of, you know, even local radiation, let's say, in the setting of uh, MSPC. You know, I've always thought about it. If you have low burden disease, you know, you may not do chemo, but you're going to use radiation potentially. If you have high burden disease, you know, you want to do something, intensify the systemic therapy, and you may not get as much of benefit out of the local radiation. But I did see some data from PEACE that kind of suggested, you know, patients that got radiotherapy had less kind of local uh, symptoms and events and things like that. So, do you think we're going to see more radiotherapy in patients with high volume disease like this, uh, you know, going forward, or uh, do you think that impacts anything that trial?
2: Um I do. I mean, I think we see these individuals that come in and it's actually really difficult to control their primary tumors. They're abutting the rectum. You're like really worried about them becoming locally aggressive and they're obstructed at the beginning and so um I think in the you know, regarding the role on overall survival, I think it's totally questionable but from a palliation standpoint to keep them in check I think it absolutely makes sense you know once they've been um you know the obstruction has been immediately resolved they've kind of cooled off these guys that are a little bad actors you may want to be a little bit more proactive with them because you don't want their presenting sign to be you know rectal obstruction and they're like you know what I mean they can they can they can go down a wrong path real quick
1: Right. You know, we had a good question coming through the chat on something we hadn't talked about, and was that was PARP inhibitors and, and the the role of PARP inhibitors in space. Um, I don't know if Chapter Rich, you want to, if you want to just kind of mention a little bit about PARP inhibitors and whether you think they'd have a role here or not. I
3: think that that would probably be more better for Dr. McKay. I, mean, I yeah, sure, mean, for sure, sure. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. McKay.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm more than happy to. So um, technically we don't have an indication for PARP inhibitors in the MHSPC setting. There are a couple of trials. Um, TalaPro3. Um, there's Amplitude that are looking at PARP inhibitors in bioselected populations in the MHSPC setting, but at the present time, we don't have data to say use a PARP inhibitor now. Should this person undergo somatic tumor profiling? I know we talked about germline profiling before, but should they undergo somatic of the tumor? 100%, because when they do progress, which you know this individual ultimately will, you want to make sure you know what you're going to treat them with down the road. You want to know if they've got an HRR alteration that they have an opportunity to receive a PARP. You kind of want to help. You want to strategize for them.
1: I know we're coming close to the hour. And one of the things I wanted to make sure we covered before we go into any questions was just the role of multidisciplinary care in these patients. So, you know, Dr. McKay, I know you come from a you know an academic center. And if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of thoughts of, of, of what your experience is. And Dr. Rich, you know, I know you do global medicine. So I would like to kind of hear what you've seen in other places, uh, you know, to that aspect as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's becoming increasingly more multidisciplinary. You know, I think maybe in a decade ago, we're more siloed. Um, but even in the metastatic setting, it's becoming increasingly more multidisciplinary with, you know, treatment of local symptoms with metastasis directed therapy, the role of primary directed therapy. Um, so it's it's like a four-way street between radonc and and urology and medical oncology. And then we're now integrating with UCMED for radioligand therapy. And our nursing team plays a clinical role because these people are on treatment. They're coming in for follow-up, survivorship care, genetics. So, I mean, prostate cancer is absolutely a, a very multidisciplinary, um, you know, uh, field.
3: Yeah, I mean George, I, yeah, I agree. I think multidisciplinary care is, is um very widely practiced globally. Uh if you're talking sort of low middle income countries where you may not have as many subspecialists readily available to you, um, you know, a lot of the urologists have taken on the role of, of medical oncologists and familiarizing themselves with some of those medications. Um, and I think one of the things that it's not as widespread, but hopefully with virtual conferences and these things. Um, virtual multidisciplinary tumor boards is something that uh, folks in countries like low and middle income countries can leverage, you know, with a partner institution in the U.S. or U.K. or somewhere uh, to make use of multidisciplinary care. But it is something that can be done virtually, and that's an option. Um, but, you know, for urologists, you know, especially those who are listening on this webinar, familiarizing yourself with some of these uh, newer agents is very important. I
1: can agree more. Uh, we'll go to the next slide, and I think that may take us, uh, yeah, we can actually go right into the uh, key uh, key points. So I think the main takeaways from this is, you know, again, evaluation of metastatic burden and risk-directed management, depending on whether the low or high volume disease. We talked about the role of triple therapy and bringing in chemotherapy and the potential side effects and importantly looking at uh, performance status there. And I think we had some good words from Dr. McKay and Dr. Rich on the role of multidisciplinary care, which is really, you know, the future of uh, this space. Okay, so I want to thank everybody for uh, joining us this evening. This is a very engaging and fun conversation, and I hope you get to join us again. Thank you very much.